Twin Peaks Idiots. I'm one of your hosts, Katie Halper. And I'm your other host, Aaron Matte. How are you, Katie? I'm good, you? I'm good. That's the second you week, the second that. time in a row. You've. I'm just trying to, you know, like I'm speaking, I'm trying to ask you how you're doing, but you're so, such a good friend that you can't wait to ask me how I'm doing. I know. I'm so concerned with your yeah. own uh, well-being. It's true. Yeah. What can we say? Yeah. yeah. Are you worried about me or something? Is there no. something? You know, yeah, okay. yeah. No more than usual. Yeah. <laughs> Should we tell people that we're going to be starting at 1230 on? Uh... Oh, this is a big announcement. This yeah. is a huge announcement. Yeah, yeah. So oh, also, my God. So for, wow. for people who are listening to our Monday morning show, which is when we go over the uh, Sunday morning news shows that we watch that you don't have to. Uh, this Monday, as well as a couple more Mondays, but we'll tell you later about those. But this Monday, we're going to do, instead of a Monday morning, it's going to be called Monday Midday. How about that? A Midday Monday. And we're going to be going over the uh, news stories at 12.30 instead of our usual time at 10 a.m. And then the call-in will be at 1.30 instead of our usual time at 11. But then the next week, it'll be back to normal. So don't freak out too much. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah big announcement. So, huge announcement. So we're moving the time up by what? Two hours, two and a half hours? Two and a half hours. Wow. This Monday. Yeah. Wow. I'm going to be guest hosting at the Hill, which I've done in the past, but I'm doing it again. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Well, we look forward to that. I mean, that's a big Monday. Katie Halper hosts the Hill in the morning. Yeah. And you come Monday. back for more at 1230 for midday, Monday morning. Yeah. All right. Well, should we get to it? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So for our forward basic food groups, I have Democrats suck this week. And uh, look, uh, some some exciting news. There's a new anti-imperialist in town and his name is Joseph Biden, the president of the U.S. He was speaking at the U.N. General Assembly and he talked about the principle which the U.S. he says really respects, which is um, how countries cannot take others territories by force. Let us speak plainly. A permanent member of the United Nations Security Council invaded its neighbor, attempted to erase a sovereign state from the map. Russia has shamelessly violated the core tenets of the United Nations Charter. No more important than the clear prohibition against countries taking the territory of their neighbor by force. So, Katie, when I heard this, I was like, wow, oh, my God, for the first time, you know, Joe Biden, who voted for the Iraq war, uh, was in the administration that invaded Libya and left it in ruins and returned the slave trade and has supported pretty much every single disastrous U.S. military intervention really ever. really excited about bombing Serbia. So excited about bombing Serbia. Oh, my God, he was so excited. He wanted to blow up the bridges. That's how excited he was. Right. That was his idea. Yes, uh, now he's finally embracing, in his words, the UN Charter, where you cannot take other people's territory by force. But wait a second. Then I listened a little closer, and I realized there's a caveat in what he says. So, Wilson, just go back like to the last, like uh, I don't know, five seconds of the clip, and, and let's hear what he says again. No more important than the clear prohibition against countries taking the territory of their neighbor by force. Countries neighbor. can't take the territory of their neighbor, neighbor by force, right? And guess what? Uh, Syria, which the U.S. is currently occupying one third of. Not our neighbor. Not a neighbor. <laughs> not a neighbor. Iraq was not our neighbor. Serbia Vietnam. was not our neighbor, you know. Going all the way back to Vietnam, yeah. But Vietnam was not our neighbor, so we're good. You know what? He's uh, very influenced by Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers. Right. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Won't you be, won't you be, please won't you be my neighbor? 
Yeah. Very hospitable. Very good to your neighbor. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And of course, that's not what the UN Charter says. The UN Charter does not have a Mr. Rogers exception. Doesn't. UN Charter says you cannot take any other sovereign state's territory by force. But the crafty people in the Biden White House, I have to give them credit for this because it's smart, sort of uh, did a sleight of hand and changed yeah. that to neighbor. And yeah. uh, that means the U.S. is good because right. we're not occupying Canada right now. I mean, we did take Mexico. Right, we did. Right. I mean, but that was a while ago. So yeah. yeah, we're neighborly. We're good neighbors. Great neighbors. All right. Well, that is a Democrat suck for sure. Well, I got a really fun Republican suck. Here's a really great campaign video from Linda Paulson, who is a Republican running for the Utah State Senate, District 12. District 12, listen up right here. There's a new name on the ballot for the Senate this year. My name is Linda Paulson, Republican and awesome. Love God and family and the Constitution. I tried to get another conservative to run. Nobody could do it, so I'm getting it done. I'm pro-religious freedom, pro-life, pro-police. The right to bear arms and the right to free speech. I want less government control and regulation want to stop and expose all political corruption where's integrity morality accountability government programs should lead to self-sufficiency and support traditional family as the fundamental unit of society but in schools they are pushing for new beliefs and just to clarify as a female adult i know what a woman is This country it's a blessing to be free but freedom comes with responsibility the constitution needs to be protected not changed or disregarded but resurrected if you share my values if you like what i stand for then give me your vote on the 8th of november district 12 needs a choice let me be your voice linda paulson linda paulson for senate now i don't know what to do aaron because i don't share her beliefs but i like her style I actually I like her think, beats. yeah, I think she has talent. I actually do. I'm not yeah. kidding. I think that was an impressive flow. I'm yeah, being right? serious. There's there's some good rhyme schemes in there. You know, some yeah. don't work. You know, uh, like where she slips in, knowing about what a woman is or something. That yeah. was, I mean, the rhyme the rhyme scheme was off there, but yeah, I agree that that rhyme scheme was off. Also, I think she edited that part in because there was a beat, like the beat was off. Mm. Like it didn't even, it wasn't just her, it was actually the music. The power of producing. I mean, what, what producing, producers yeah. can do these days is really amazing. But uh, yeah. I also liked her her little dance move at front, like the step to the side, yeah. to the other side, and then a little twirl. Yeah. That was uh, that was good. She knows how to use space. Yeah. yeah. And crazily, you know, she, had, she discloses that she tried to get somebody else to run. Yeah. But nobody wanted it. So. Well, that's good. That's, in. you know, they say, Roseanne DeMauro says, uh, leader, great leaders aren't made their corner. That's right. You do want a reluctant administrator. That's true. She didn't want to do it. She didn't want to do it, Linda. Linda did not want to do it. Well, thank you, Linda. Thank you, um, Linda, for your service. And if it doesn't work out in the state senate, you know, think about a rap career. Definitely. You know, I actually hope it doesn't work out, not just for the sake of the world, but the sake of the (laughs) rap world. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be it'd be good for everybody uh, if she loses. Win win. Good for Utah, given her, uh, you know, reactionary policies, and great for the rap world, given her amazing skills. There you go. Everybody wins. If she loses. Right. All right. So for isn't that weird, we have um, what I think is kind of a weird fashion shoot. You know, it was, re- it was recently Fashion Week. Brands are unveiling their fall line. So this is Jerry Seinfeld 
posing for a spread with uh, Kith, which is like a shoe company. They sell shoes and other um, urban gear. So this is Jerry posing uh, for Kith. And I just thought it was kind of weird. So look at that. Katie's, yeah, and it's for our podcast audience who won't be able to see this. But Jerry is in a apartment, it looks like, and he's wearing some... Um, you know, urban fashion, I think you can call that. He's wearing a a, a, a jogging suit there. It's sporty. Yeah. 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 He's also leaning in a, in a lot he's of leaning. Them. Yeah. Oh, he's looking... is, is this um is this camo? That looks like camo. Yeah. Wow. And he's looking the thing is if this was being done ironically, yeah. You know, because uh Jerry is a, you know, uh middle aged, uh upper middle aged uh white man. I think it'd be kind of funny, but I don't think this is ironic. I think no. this is actually serious. What's this jacket? It looks like a um is this like a nat like a southwestern kind of pattern? I don't know. I don't know. It's like it's New interesting. Mexico, Santa yeah. Fe, je ne sais quoi. And I'm just wondering what what demographic they're going for here. Like when I when I whenever I pass by kid stores, it's it's like kids lined up down the block because it's like the new sneaker is gonna drop that day. So they always have these huge lines for new sneakers. And Jerry is, you know, if you watch Seinfeld, he was kind of a sneaker head. Um, on top of being a cereal box head, he uh, right. You know, right. But I just never, I just don't see who they're trying to appeal to here. But uh, hey, you know, I'm not. That's why I'm not in the world of fashion, I guess. Right. Yeah. Very weird. Yeah. Very. very now I'll say weird. this: if Larry David was posing, that would be. Much I'd probably cooler. be into that. Yeah, yeah. Me too. Yeah. Because he'd be so self-deprecating. Yeah, he wouldn't be doing it seriously. Obviously. Right. You know. Yeah. But Jerry. That's another <laughs> example of of Larry being far superior to Jerry. I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm very sympathetic to that view. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, for isn't that terrible? We have a, a, a terrible story, but it's also a good teachable moment. So very proud to be presenting this for uh, Useful Idiots. It's a PSA. Uh, let's just go to the videotape. This to make sure I get it right, because it's that strange, right? There's the FDA has issued a warning about what I guess is a social media trend about kids cooking chicken in NyQuil, using over-the-counter drugs for funky stuff. What on earth is going on here? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to believe that this is even a thing. And a couple of years ago, it was taking too much Benadryl to hallucinate. So, you know, it just seems like one social media trend after another keeps popping up. And I think parents really need to understand that this is going on, first and foremost. They need to keep their medicines, whether it's over-the-counter or prescription, out of reach or locked from kids in the home. They need to sit down and have conversations about how to take medication safely um, and also in a non-judgmental way about the dangers of things like this. There is apparently a phenomenon in which people are cooking chicken in NyQuil. And I think it's very important, again, to uh, talk about it, as that woman said, in a non-judgmental way. The FDA issued a warning. It says, one social media trend relying on peer pressure is online video clips of people misusing non-prescription medications and encouraging uh, viewers to do so. These video challenges, which often target youth, can harm people and even cause death. Boiling a medication can make it much more concentrated and change its properties in other ways, even if you don't eat the chicken. Inhaling the medication's vapors while cooking could cause high levels of drugs to enter your body. It could also hurt your lungs. So, guys, I don't even want to get into how you would cook a, a chicken in um, medication, but just don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it in NyQuil. Don't do it in DayQuil either. Don't think it's a, a, about that. You can't do it in either quill.
Does the NyQuil, though, make the chicken more finger licking? Is there any finger licking benefit of, of NyQuil? That's my I, question. I don't I'm, know. I'm not endorsing it. I'm just wondering. No, I'm but you're wondering. kind of leaving the door open. Well, I'm just wondering. I mean, you're why? Just wondering? Why, it's yeah. Katie, well, I'm on Aaron's side. It could be like a, a sweet baby Ray's kind of thing, kind of tack up the chicken. Well, <laughs> guys, you're really undermining my PSA, but I guess you're helping. You're heightening the terrible for isn't that terrible? Okay, but I have a question. Why? I mean, why would someone use NyQuil? Is it just for fun on a social media or is there some kind of thing it does to the chicken? I don't know. It's Well, yeah. it, well maybe it's because they want maybe if you're sick. Uh huh. It's a good way to, you know, you maybe people are mistakenly thinking that it's a good way to stay healthy because, you know, when you're sick, sometimes you don't have an appetite, but you still need to eat. So maybe that's what they're thinking. Right. I'm just yeah. throwing it out there. I'm just spitballing yeah. here. Or it's just some crazy social media thing where it's just people want to issue a challenge, a dare, and people like dares, you know? Oh, yeah, that's what it, yeah, that's what yeah. it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I don't even know how you do it, but you should not be doing it. And uh, just don't boil chicken in any medication ever. Yeah, yeah. And to our vegan friends, you know, we should say. No tofurkeys you know, in, yeah. in uh, medication. Exactly, yeah. exactly. No yeah. no tofurkeys with uh, NyQuil. Nope, sorry. Okay. Sorry, vegans. Sorry, vegans. You don't get you to aren't, play either. Exactly. You aren't exempt from this one. Or you're welcome, vegans, because we're speaking to you and we're including you in our PSA. <laughs> so that's yeah. pretty terrible. That's terrible. It must, taste, it must taste terrible. It does. <laughs> Now I'm hungry, though, I have to admit. We're really excited about today's guest. Benjamin Abelo is a researcher and writer who holds a BA in European history from the University of Pennsylvania and an MD from Yale University School of Medicine. He previously worked in Washington, D.C., lecturing, writing, and lobbying Congress about nuclear arms policy. And so Ben's a doctor. He's a medical doctor, medical but we're not talking about medicine today. He's going to give us his diagnosis. Yeah of the Ukraine proxy war. So let's go to it, to Ben Abelow. Very excited to be talking to Benjamin Abelow, who is the author of How the West Brought War to Ukraine, Understanding How U.S. and NATO Policies Led to Crisis, War, and the Risk of Nuclear Catastrophe. So welcome. Thank you. Of course. What made you write this book in the first place? You know, it actually started off as an op-ed and then kind of grew to a medium piece and then got uh, modified and converted over into a book. I just was quite concerned about what was going on. I had uh, worked on nuclear arms issues a long time ago. So I kind of had a certain foundation and I pretty quickly formed a view of what was happening, even though my knowledge, I would say initially was pretty deficient. I have a medical background and I kind of went off on different paths for quite a while. So I just started trying to fill in my knowledge and uh, started off trying to explain it to people as I understood it. At a certain point, I just realized, you know, I should just turn this into a book and really try to get some mileage out of it in the sense of uh, reaching an audience that, you know, I, I wouldn't reach through an op-ed or through through even a you know medium article. And you got really good blurbs. You got Chomsky, uh, John Mearsheimer, Richard Sakwa, Chad Freeman, Jack F. Matlock, Douglas McGregor, all the big <laughs> critical voices basically all the big names yeah i yeah. guess so or a lot of them um and can you lay out your uh your thesis for people who haven't read the book yet the subtitle kind of tells the whole story understanding how u.s and nato policies led to crisis war and the risk of nuclear catastrophe um I, you know i guess you could describe this as a counter narrative to the 
the current mainstream narrative, which does, you know, depending on who puts it forward, runs along the lines of that um, Putin is uh, Hitler, the new Hitler or a Hitler-like character at least. And this is an unprovoked land grab, whether, you know, for Lebensraum or for imperial purposes or something, just the evil Putin with no plausible national security motivation. Not, not to say that it was a great thing to do, but just that it was uh, the, the typical view is that there was no real basis for this uh, in, in terms of any way that the U.S. policymakers might consider how they might act. And the basic thesis is that, you know, a combination of NATO and Western military actions that were taken outside of NATO were really extremely provocative and in a sense backed Putin into a corner and that he uh, lashed out in a pretty violent and destructive way uh, in an attempt to, I think, you know, as I view it, I think there's different ways of understanding this, of course, but the way I view it primarily, it's a military issue that he's trying to create a zone around uh you know, around Russia's uh, Western border that is basically free of Western military threats, whether they be NATO or uh, extra NATO threats through, uh, you know, direct U.S. Uh, Ukrainian relations or multinational or other, uh, you know, bilateral uh, relations between Ukraine and other countries that are bringing in military planning and operations and things like that. So what is your reaction to the latest news? Uh, Putin just gave a speech where, as expected, he ordered uh, a partial mobilization. He's going to uh, call up up to 300,000 Russian forces. He said that those who will be uh, enlisted are people who have already served in the Russian army in some capacity. So, you know, college students and workers are not going to be affected. But this is a major escalation. And he also said that when it comes to the possibility of using nuclear weapons in Ukraine, he said that he's not bluffing. Um, he also pointed out and this is something I'll, I'll be very curious to see what the reaction will be from the U.S. if they give one at all, where he said that uh, for the first time today, he said, I'm going to reveal what happened, which is that early on in the war, the Ukrainian and Russian side reached some compromises that he said satisfied Russian security concerns. But then he said after that was reached, the U.S. basically sabotaged that agreement. And that bolsters previous news that we've talked about on this show, um, where reports in the Ukrainian media citing sources close to Zelensky did say that, yes, there was a tentative agreement reached between Ukraine and Russia, but that Boris Johnson was dispatched to say that these talks cannot go forward and that the U.S. and U.K. would not back up Ukraine with security guarantees if it made a peace deal with Russia. And recently, Fiona Hill, uh, yeah. former White House expert, also gave weight to that by saying in foreign affairs that U.S. officials knew that there was an agreement reached or the broad outlines of an agreement reached between Ukraine and Russia. What Fiona Hill left out is what was previously reported in the Ukrainian with, media. With Boris Johnson. Yeah. With Boris Johnson, yeah. Yeah, there was an article in Ukrainian Pravda uh, back in, was it April? I forget, that basically uh, said that there were two reasons why Ukraine had not reached a, a peace agreement with Russia. And one was that uh, Boris... That he, uh, Zelensky was about to, or very close to it, and then Boris Johnson basically showed up in um, in in Kiev and told uh, told Zelensky that uh, you may be ready to make peace, but we're not. And the second reason had to do also was uh, stated that the, uh, the 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 massacre or the alleged massacre, whatever one makes of this, you know, the killings of civilians in Bucha. Uh, Bucha, uh, and that those two factors were why there was no agreement. And then, as as Aaron said, there was an article recently in uh, 
Foreign Affairs by Fiona Hill and someone else, uh, Sten, I think. Uh, I actually just got that in my inbox today. I put that on order, but it was slow to get it. Um, but I had heard about the content of it. That, as Aaron said, does seem to reinforce the idea that there really was a uh, peace agreement that had been made uh, or very close to being made, uh, brokered by Turkey uh, back in, I think it was April. Um, and uh, that this was basically sabotaged by uh, Johnson, who presumably was went to Kiev with the agreement with the U.S. I don't think he would do such a thing without the U.S. being involved in that. You know, I think the, other, the only other piece I would perhaps add, just sitting in the background, is that <clears throat> although uh, Russia's invasion has often been described as this kind of terrible crime against humanity, and, you know, in a certain sense, of course, anytime you kill uh, you take an action that leads to the death of large numbers of civilians or even, you know, young military people in some cases, uh, you know, this can be considered a great evil. But uh, often the invasion has been portrayed as this kind of uh, unconstrained uh, massive attack on. And, you know, as I understand it, it's actually been, you know, by the standards of what the U.S. might might do in a place like Iraq, where it opens up with a strategic bombing campaign. Uh, this was actually a fairly uh, constrained and whether or not one wants to give credence to the idea that this was just a special operation and not a war from the beginning. I don't know. To some extent, this is a semantic question of what you want to call a war, what you want to call a special operation. But it did not uh, involve you know, massive strategic bombing. Uh, the numbers were relatively small given uh, you know, the size of Ukrainian forces. I've heard uh, numbers. This might have been um, Chaz Freeman who talked about this that if you compare the actual number of military casualties compared with civilian casualties, you can come up with a kind of ratio of basically collateral damage compared to military damage. And that will tell you something about the extent of the attack and that the higher the level of collateral damage, the sort of the more massive the attack is thought to be. And the collateral, the level of collateral damage, the civilian deaths among Ukrainians compared to the military who are killed, was actually relatively low for a, a large-scale invasion. And that itself seems to support, as I understand it, it's not something I have any expertise in at all, but just based on what Chaz Freeman was saying, uh, who Chaz Freeman, by the way, was the Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs back in the 90s and has a, quite an extensive background in both military and uh, uh, State Department. And that itself seemed to reinforce the, the plausibility of the statement that this was not any sort of massive war from the beginning, but was really seeking specific limited aims. Uh, and then of course, this, uh, this escalation that Aaron has just described is of course, you know, suggesting this is becoming closer to a real war. As far as the nuclear weapons, the threat that he would use nuclear weapons, you know, all I can say is I hope it's being taken seriously because the Western media has been very quick to dismiss anything he said about nuclear weapons up till now as just kind of, um, uh, you know, irresponsible propaganda. But, you know, when you're dealing with um, two superpowers right on the border of Russia, you know, whether one wants to consider Russia a superpower or not, when you're dealing with a U.S. superpower, which has been very involved, uh, and it's questionable whether the U.S. can actually claim to not be a direct combatant, you know, anything can happen. There's great risks of things escalating. So, you know, my hope is that if he, I, first of all, if he, if he said it, I, I don't dismiss it as a possibility if things go a certain direction. And I hope it's taken seriously because it's, it's something that really needs to be factored in. Now, Ben, uh, what you just said about 
the civilian casualties in Ukraine being relatively low. Some people are going to be offended by that. They'll take umbrage with that. So I want to just show that you are not the only person making this analysis. It actually comes from U.S. officials. So it was actually revealed recently in the New York Times that U.S. officials are baffled by how Russia has waged this war. So let's see this quote. So this is from the Times. Some American officials express concern that the most dangerous moments are yet to come, even as Putin has avoided escalating the war in ways that have, at times, baffled Western officials. He has made only limited attempts to destroy critical infrastructure or to target Ukrainian government buildings. So that's a really um, rare admission right there that I think undermines a lot of the propaganda that's been used to uh, justify the proxy war. Uh, which is that Russia has been waging this genocidal campaign inside of Ukraine. Here is the U.S. Uh, via the New York Times, the heart of establishment media, admitting that they're baffled by how Russia has actually avoided escalating the war and that unlike, say, the U.S. in Iraq, as you said, Ben, they have not targeted infrastructure, which is the first thing that the U.S. would do when it goes in to invade a country like it did in Iraq. And the fact that coupling that with the sabotage of peace, of peace talks before shows that, yes, while Russia has criminal responsibility for this war, on the U.S. side, there's been everything done uh, to continue to prolong it, even despite the awareness that it could get far worse, which I think it will. But let me ask you about some of the background that, it, that, that gets omitted. So the major grievance that we hear when it comes to Russia and Ukraine, the only one that's really we're allowed to talk about in mainstream debate over this issue, to the extent that there is debate, is NATO expansion. So we hear often that Russia's complained about NATO expansion, and that is a very big factor in the background to this war. But as you point out in your book, there's actually other factors beyond NATO expansion. So I'm wondering if you can expand on that. Yes. I mean, one of the points I try to make in the book, I mean, I do agree NATO expansion is very important. Uh, I think it's important both symbolically and practically, uh, practically in that to the extent that NATO might become uh, a member that itself, I think, is a serious threat. That Ukraine might become a member. Uh, I'm sorry, that Ukraine might become a, a, a self-serious threat. I think also just in terms of that, uh, to the extent that that's being considered as a possibility for the future, it also means that the arming that's taken place of, uh, of Ukraine by the U.S. and by other countries is uh, using NATO standard armaments and um, uh, attempting to develop uh, NATO-level interoperability, interoperability, which they don't currently have, but they're moving towards that. Aaron, so let me just be clear. So the question you're asking is uh, the threats outside of NATO. Is that what you wanted me to focus on? Well, not outside of NATO, but just the way Russian grievances are discussed. It's simply that they're upset about NATO expanding further to the east. Yeah. Russia's borders. What I get from your book is that, you know, you, you try to lay out the other factors that go along with that, that, go, that come along with NATO expansion, that make the threat of NATO expansion that yeah. was more pronounced for Russia. So one general way that I would just frame this, as I said before, is military threat. You, you know, whether the real issue is not a purely symbolic uh, issue about NATO, it's what does NATO entail militarily, a defensive alliance, which involves a lot of arming right on Russia's border. Uh, and I think one can look at that separately. One can also look at uh, arming uh, and another type of military threat that's encompassed by bilateral and multilateral arrangements where the U.S. outside of NATO is arming Ukraine and working towards NATO level interoperability. And other countries are doing the same. And there are uh, multilateral 
war exercises that take place inside and near Ukraine that are taking place outside of NATO as well. So I, I do think NATO is very important. I think it can become kind of a distraction if one focuses only on NATO and starts asking questions like, well, are they really going to join or uh, things like that? I, I, I tend to lump a lot of this together under sort of a generic category of military threat, which encompasses both NATO and non-NATO uh, militarization of the area. I think there are other issues too. Uh, you know, one of the things... Uh, just given my medical background and some other personal interests in, in the area of re in research in this area, um, I'm interested in, in psychological factors. And, uh, you know, there's been an awful lot of kind of, uh, I would just call it gratuitous disregard of Putin on a human level. Actually, in the book, at one point, I, I, I use the analogy of gaslighting. I, yeah. I think I say something to the effect yeah. of, if you are interacting with a person on, on just in a social setting and you're doing something threatening to that person, yet you're denying any reality to the threat, uh, you know, this is a, a weird combination of actual threat and disregard or uh, the implication that the person's perception of the threat is all in their head. And this gets called gaslighting. So what do you call it when you tell uh, the leader of a country that there are no threats when, in fact, there are threats. Whatever the intentions are, the threats I'm talking about pertain to geographic location and military hardware, just like the U.S. would not, uh, it, you know, the analogy is sometimes given if there were uh, Russian military forces that were placed in Canada or in Mexico, and then Russia said, well, we don't really mean to, we don't mean harm. These are purely defensive. Don't worry about it. You know, the U.S. would not uh, make much of that. Uh, they, they might be glad to hear that, all else being equal. But what they would really do is look at the nature of the hardware and the capacities of those hardware and the geographic proximity and the nature of the training exercises. If there are threats uh, in an objective sense right on Russia's border, and they're moving closer to Russia's border. And uh, the Russian leader uh, points to those threats and the American uh, leaders say in effect, this is all in your head. We are purely defensive. You know, I think one can legitimately call that a kind of gaslighting, both on a uh, kind of a, a, a geostrategic international scale in terms of the leaders themselves, but sort of in a broad uh, kind of political sense. This is a sort of uh, international or uh, international relations gaslighting. Um, I think the U.S. is kind of just disregarding certain realities. I don't, I, it's a little bit unclear to me whether this is, you know, at first I think there's probably a range of uh, players involved in the U.S. side. I think some are probably, you know, very well-intentioned and are simply uh, interpreting, uh, you know, new actions in terms of old narratives. I think some of them are probably well-intentioned, but are sort of being deliberately deceptive uh, because they really believe they have to be deceptive in order to build up the correct armaments. Uh, I think there are others that are just sheer demagogues, and I won't try to point out who's who. But I, all I'm saying is I don't really think you can say in any given, you know, just broadly what the U.S. intentions are, because I think there's a range of intentions from a range of players but any way you cut it, there's a kind of disregard for legitimate Russian security concerns from a kind of a geostrategic perspective. And I think that's um, uh, so to bring this back to Aaron's question, it's not only the question of military threat. There's a sort of, oh, I don't know, call it disingenuous, call it, um, you know, the situation is even exacerbated by the fact 
that there's this kind of gaslighting going on, whether that gaslighting is intentional or unintentional. So, yeah, and a major aspect of the military threat, which I think is the most um, important factor here, is the U.S. killing all of these uh, arms control treaties that allow it to place offensive weaponry right on Russia's borders. Uh, and you talk about this in the book, the killing of the anti-ballistic missile treaty under George W. Bush, uh, which allowed the U.S. to uh, build these missile defense uh, sites in Romania and Poland. And they claimed that the reason was to help protect Europe from Iranian missiles. Yeah. And I don't think Iranian missiles even could hit Europe. And even if they could, it'd be insane for Iran to launch them. The real reason was to give the U.S. the option to actually place offensive missiles they could that they could uh, use against Russia. And that's been further exacerbated by Trump's decision, which gets no attention because it undermined the Russiagate narrative that Trump was doing Russia's bidding, to kill the INF Treaty, which had eliminated an entire class of nuclear mm -hmm. weapons and allows both sides to build those up. I mean, that that part of the background is the part to me that gets the least amount of attention. Yeah, that's interesting. And that was, I would say that was one of the things that drew my attention most strongly right away, kind of given my my past interest, deep past interest in arms control and the sort of the threats, both actual threats and psychological pressures that are imposed by nuclear arms. Because to some extent, I mean, everyone should realize that both sides effectively have an invulnerable second strike capability. But psychologically, these things play a very important role. Although personally, I believe that both sides have effectively an invulnerable second strike capability after a after a, a first strike. You know, one of the points I make in the book is, and I quote some German people, uh, German experts on this, uh, to to validate it, that you know there really are actual threats. I mean, if if a massive first strike was launched, you know, there's questions about what would happen to command and control systems. So I think, e even though I believe that. Second strike would always be retained. Uh, I think a country that's trying to act prudently becomes concerned when uh, weapons become closer or more more highly targetable, uh, more accurate. As you said, uh, you know, first there's the abrogation of the ABM treaty. Uh, it was late 2000 or 2001, I think it was, by um, uh, by uh, George Bush, and the particular ABM sites that were established that have been established in Romania now that are I think it's still under construction in Poland I don't think it's operational yet although I'm not 100% sure uh and then even the possibility that such sites might be established in Ukraine these sites um each site has 24 uh launch tubes uh, that are able to accommodate offensive nuclear weapons like Tomahawk cruise missiles. So uh, this, these ABM sites, you know, aside from the concern that this could be used to try to mop up a Soviet, uh, Soviet a Russian second strike uh, a, a response to a, a perceived American first strike, uh, there's also the threat that these uh, that the um, anti-ballistic missiles in those tubes could really be replaced with offensive weapons, especially in a crisis. And the U.S., of course, says these are not our intentions. But in a crisis, the, the, the more you're set up to be able to have an offensive threat close to Russian territory, uh, the sort of more destabilizing it is. So uh, I think this is very uh, significant. And as also, as you said, the uh, abrogation of the um, 
uh, intermediate range nuclear weapons treaty by by Trump. I think that was in 2019. These are um, uh, basically ground to ground or land to land uh, missiles with a range between 500 and uh, 5,000 kilometers, and those were pretty much banned. Um, I'm forgetting what year that was. Was it 87? That treaty has now been uh, uh, abrogated pretty much unilaterally by the U.S. There were accusations uh, by the U.S. that the Russians were cheating. There were Russian accusations that the U.S. was cheating. Uh, you, you know, the truth of it's very hard to sort out and also is very technical in nature. But the key point was that the U.S. was the party that really decided not to vigorously try to attempt to resolve the problems that they wanted out. Uh, and as I point out in the book, there seems to be the case that that the U.S. may have wanted to do that based on sort of parochial tactical advantage that they thought they could gain from this, uh, as well as the possibility of countering China, uh, which is not covered by that treaty. Uh, but the the basic combination of having abrogated the ABM treaty, which, uh, you know, both uh, uh, sets up a possibility of uh, attenuating uh, a second strike from Russia after a perceived U.S. first strike, uh, the possibility of emplacing offensive weapons there combined with uh, the abrogation of the um, Intermediate Range Forces Treaty. Um, uh, so uh, I, I was just reading, for instance, about the, you know, the HIMAR um, uh, you know, these high mobility uh, artillery rocket systems that are being given to Ukraine. Now, the, now those have short range and there's the whole question of whether they're going to give the longer range ones. But the, the, the systems that are now in development are actually to have even longer range. Uh, that they're, the system is under development is designed to be a 499 kilometer <laughs> range, which is, you know, just under the um, intermediate uh, forces distance. But they're now being, you know, they're now modifying the specs to make them much more longer range. So uh, those are apparently scheduled to become online in, in uh, 2024. But the, the point is simply that there's a very serious um, uh, arms control concerns going on. And, uh, and that has, um, I think, you know, real significance, both in terms of actual military hardware and threats and also psychologically. You say in your book, uh, you write about how the alleged uh, motivations of for the U.S. have changed. So you write, in the months since Russia invaded Ukraine, the explanation offered for America's involvement has changed. What has been pitched as a limited humanitarian effort to help Ukraine defend itself has morphed to include an additional aim to degrade Russia's capacity to fight another war in the future. Um, and then you, you go on, in fact, the strategic objective may have been in place from the start. In March, more than a month before the new U.S. policy was announced, Chaz Freeman, previously Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, observed, everything we are doing, rather than accelerating an end to the fighting and some compromise, seems to be aimed at prolonging the fighting assisting the Ukrainian resistance, which is a noble cause, I suppose, but will result in a lot of dead Ukrainians as well as dead Russians. And then you go on. Freeman's observation points to an uncomfortable truth. America's two war aims are not really compatible with each other, whereas a humanitarian effort would seek to limit the destruction and end the war quickly. The strategic goal of weakening Russia requires a prolonged war with maximum destruction, one that bleeds Russia drive men and machine on battlefield Ukraine. Freeman captures the contradiction in a darkly ironic quip, quote, we will fight to the last Ukrainian for Ukrainian independence, end quote. So my question is to, I guess, play devil's advocate. What would you say to people who say that 
well, weakening Russia is a humanitarian goal. Because if we degrade their military, they won't be able to, uh, and, you know, launch invasions such as these. Right. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I, you know, there's a couple of ways of looking at that. I think probably the most important is that the, the way one would degrade Russia's military is to keep an extended war going and to do what, as Chaz Friedman described, fight for Ukrainian independence to the last Ukrainian. Um, Aaron's uh, recent Substack article on this uh, addresses this point really well. Uh, and it basically makes the point that, you know, this strategy entails killing an awful lot of Ukrainians who wouldn't die otherwise. Uh, and, you know, quite literally, uh, Aaron, I forget the name of the, um, uh, the congressperson that you were, you had that video clip of, uh, was basically, <laughs> he almost literally talks about, <laughs> we want to get the Ukrainians to fight to the last Ukrainian and takes this as a, um, uh, something very advantageous. But it's, you know, we're talking about killing huge numbers of Ukrainians. Yeah, look, it's, it's uh, Lindsey Graham. And, and let's actually watch the clip. Four months into this thing, I like the structural path we're on here. As long as we help Ukraine with the weapons they need and the economic support, they will fight to the last person. So Secretary Blinken, I didn't think there was an issue under the sun that would get 100 votes. We found it. Russia is a state sponsor of terrorism. So there yeah. he says it. And what's interesting is, you know, people like Chas Freeman were saying critically that the U.S. policy is to fight to the last Ukrainian. Here's Lindsey Graham <laughs> saying that as a matter of policy, and he likes that. He's happy about that. It, it's it's quite amazing. I mean, really, right? It's right on the surface that we're talking about just killing huge numbers of, or having huge numbers of Ukrainians kill themselves, uh, battling, uh, uh, you know, fighting Russia in a battle in a uh, military operation that the U.S. does not seem very eager to have end. Um, so I uh, so to bring this back to Katie's uh, comment or question, uh, you, you know, it's by no means humanitarian when you prolong a war let's call it artificially and you know coming back again to this question of boris johnson showing up in april and the ukrainian pravda article and the fiona hill references and foreign affairs you know really taking steps designed to prevent a peaceful resolution to the problem under terms that might be acceptable to both to both parties um yeah, it's just it's kind of extraordinary. I, I, I'll just add one more point, too. I mean, this is almost so trivial, you don't need to say it. But it, if this um, uh, war objective is, in fact, destabilizing, as I think it probably is, <laughs> you know, anytime you have a greater risk of nuclear war, that's not humanitarian for anybody. <laughs> I mean, it's not humanitarian for the Ukrainians. It's not humanitarian for the Russians, not humanitarian for us. It's uh, conceivably could escalate and wipe out the whole world. Uh, that's... Um, a lot of human beings there. So, yeah, look, and if you're going to invoke humanitarian concerns um, to justify prolonging this war, then that means you also have to ignore, by definition, the humanitarian concerns of the people in the Donbass who've been living under a war for the last eight years. And it's a, a war that's been widely overlooked, but 14,000 people, according to the UN, have died, the majority on the Russian speaking side. And that's a war that the U.S. has fueled uh, with a lot of weaponry. And Trump actually got impeached when he briefly impeded the flow of weapons. And that's when Adam Schiff said that the U.S. fights uh, Russia, th that the United States aids Ukraine so that we can fight Russia over there. We don't have to fight Russia here. And 
there are voices inside the Donbass where you know Russian speakers live that have been calling for Russian intervention for a very, very long time. It's taken Russia eight years to do it. And I personally can't justify Russia doing it. I have to believe there were other ways for Russia to try to seek a diplomatic resolution to all this. But the fact is we can't pretend that there hasn't been a war going on. And we also can't pretend the people of the Donbass who have been shelled with U.S. weaponry for the last eight years don't exist. Yeah, yeah I think that's... A good point. Um, I'll add to that. You know, it's very sometimes it, there's a, a tendency to think of the soldiers who are fighting a war as not part of the humanitarian crisis. But, uh, you know, starting with the Ukrainian side, I mean, there are people who are being uh, impressed into service who, you know, are basically subject to arrest if they try to avoid this. So there there are civilians in Ukraine who are being forced to fight. Uh, that might not otherwise want to fight. You know, they're part of the humanitarian crisis too. So even if we could completely eliminate all quote unquote collateral damage, I mean, you're, you're talking about young human beings who are, you know, everyone is on some level a civilian. They just happen to be su sucked into the army, either voluntarily or uh, by impressment. Uh, and then, of course, even on the Russian side, I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of Russian soldiers who are not eager to be fighting this war that either they have concerns that if they resist it, they, they'll run into trouble, uh, or they believe that this is you know, a legitimate concern for their safety of their society and their families. But either way, you know, you're talking about 19 or 20 year old uh, boys, young men, who are basically being burned alive in their tanks with, um, uh, with anti-tank weapons uh, or you know, artillery or anything else. So I, I think it's, you know, the ongoing war is kind of a humanitarian disaster for everyone, uh, leaving aside any questions of escalation and even leaving aside uh, collateral damage, which itself is just another form of humanitarian uh, disaster. Both of you have referred to alternatives for Putin. You write in your book, um, notwithstanding all, I will say, I believe he had alternatives to war. And Aaron, you just referred to that. What do you guys think he could have done? And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. That was great. Very good. Uh, this is a really, it's a very uh, slim book, so it's easy reading and it's yep, quick and it gives reading. you a lot of background on the war that gets ignored and suppressed in our uh, mainstream media. So a good way to understand what's a, now a very dangerous situation. Yeah, I wish it were required reading, honestly, especially for the media. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, so to support us and get more bonus content, go to usefulidiots.substack.com. And Katie will be back next week on Monday morning at a slightly different time. Yeah. 1230. All right. See everybody then. Bye, everyone. Hello. Thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. <laughs>